A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, and the author of Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. If you'd like a signed copy, you can order one from the Margate Bookshop. They deliver nationwide. Today's guest is the writer and critic Olivia Lang. I fell in love with her words when I read 2016's The Lonely City, a meditation on solo living, New York, and the artists who have lost and found themselves there. Since then, Olivia has published the Sunday Times bestseller Crudo, a fictionalised real-time account of the summer of 2017, and an essay collection, Funny Weather, Art in an Emergency. Her new book, Everybody, a book about freedom, uses the life of the psychoanalyst Willem Reck to explore the body as a site of pleasure and pain. We talked about Dickens, cancel culture, and how her husband's passion for the works of Jilly Cooper ended up in the Daily Mail. I know you have given many, many interviews about your wonderful book, Funny Weather, and about the function of art in hard times. I would love to ask you about the books that you turned to during our year of hard times. The best thing I read, actually, was um, Bleak House by Dickens, which I suddenly realised that I did not know very much about 19th century literature. And obviously everyone loves Dickens, and Dickens is amazing, and maybe I should pick it up. And... The reason everyone loves Dickens is because he's bloody amazing. It was totally brilliant. And so sort of appetite for a plague year, it's it's all full of um, infection and quarantine and somebody gets um, the pox and has to lock herself in a room. And there are all these scenes that felt so sort of resonant to read in the first lockdown. And there were scenes that sort of stayed with me and scenes that were heart-rending and language that stayed with me. So Dickens was absolutely my best lockdown read. And was there anything specific that really led you to that book? Or was it just one of those, it's not going anywhere, one day I'll read it, and one day was 2020? I think, actually, so my husband was a Cambridge Don and has read every single book ever written. And, you know, I feel various sort of strands of guilt and shame about the things I hadn't read. And at the beginning of, what year are we in now, 2021? So New Year's Eve 2019, I said, well, I'm, I'm going to read 12 19th century novels over the course of the year, not really obviously realising what kind of year it was going to be. So I did peter out after a few, but I read Middlemarch and I read um, Bleak House. I read a bit more Dickens. Um, and I read all of Jane Austen's that I hadn't read. So I was on a sort of project anyway. But Bleak House was just one of those magical sort of coincidings of the subject matter resonated so much with what was happening in the world. Dickens' kind of fury about what happens to the poor felt so resonant as well. So it just, um, 
it just really came alive for me. I'm ashamed about how little Dickens I've read. And I think maybe the secret is to think, well, no, I must read him because he is wonderful and not to sort of resent it as, as further homework. It's just not homework. It's, it really rockets along and the characters are hilarious and the jokes are still funny and it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm doing something really worthy now, I'm reading my Dickens. It felt like, please get everyone stop talking in this room because I need to read my Dickens. Because <laughs> I'm always surprised by his humour and how it is still funny and funny for the same reasons I imagine, not that I was you know, around in the 19th century being amused by things. But I think Bleak House is my dad's very, very favourite. And my problem with it is just that it's called Bleak House, <laughs> which doesn't entice me. But Bleak House, I thought this too. I thought Bleak House was a really bleak house, but it turns out Bleak House is actually like the most lovely, warm, comfortable house and the name is a joke. So if somebody had told me that, I might have read it earlier. <laughs> I believe um, you mentioned your very well-read husband. I think we have both been on the same podcast together. I think we were both on the Jilly Cooper episode of Backlisted, talking about oh, Imogen, which is um, <laughs> far from Bleak House. My favourite book. <laughs> is it really? I put, uh, yes, I got him into, it was me that made him read Jilly Cooper after his wife, his wife before me, Jenny Disky, died. So I feel very responsible for his um, late life love affair with Jilly Cooper, which now happens in reality because they adore each other and send each other valentines. Oh, so they have a correspondence. They're friends. They became really good friends. As a result of of his late in life reading? As a result of... Well, he wrote an appreciation of her for the LRB, and which might be before that podcast. And that got taken up by, you know, the Daily Mail were going... Cambridge... Lovelorn... Or heartbroken Cambridge Don finds new lease of life reading Jilly Cooper and... She read all of these pieces and then read the original LRB piece and was absolutely um, bowled over by how seriously he'd taken her truly amazing books, which deserved to be read that seriously, and then invited us over and we all became friends and she was the nicest person alive. This is wonderful. This is making my heart swell. It makes me so happy. And again, in a way, I suppose she's probably really doing I think something very similar to Dickens in a different way where she's talking about what is going on socially and observing people and being quite waspish and quite critical when the occasion calls for it but also I think being she sees what people do she judges people on their behavior and she has those enormous casts of all sort of levels of class and rural casts and urban casts and she's very good at kind of satirising how people how people behave. She's sort of like Trollope and she's a lot like Jane Austen as well. I just think Julie Cooper is criminally underrated in this country. She's she's such an interesting and funny and beady writer. She's so intelligent about how people behave. I agree. I've been in moments of insomnia. I've been rereading The Man Who Made Husbands Jealous lately. And the- oh, nice Santa. <laughs> I think he's my favourite because Rupert Campbell Black is just horrible. And I think the more... No, this is wrong. Not horrible, but you know, I think when I was a wide-eyed teenager, I thought, you know, yes, that's the man for me. And now I think, oh, no, Lysander's just so properly kind. Um, he's a bit wet. Oh. I'd rather have Rupert. There's a brilliant scene where Rupert grabs somebody a bread roll, butters it and puts salt on it and goes, eat that. And I always think that's just the most romantic, brilliant scene. <laughs> I do 
no, Jilly, a very tiny bit. I've been very, very lucky and had the pleasure of her company a couple of times. And uh, we decided we're both um, we're both Pisces. <laughs> we are both quite wet. <laughs> so I think that um, Lysander is possibly her. Maybe that everyone thinks he's a little bit wet, but she's very fond, and I'm very fond. But I don't want to assume anything of the um, uh, the queen of my literary heart. But uh, tell me about the, the Jane Austen that you were rereading, and just had Claire Chambers on the podcast. But um, that she went back and read Persuasion, I think, having not really enjoyed it very much the first time around, and being quite dismissive of it. But I'm glad that she went back for another crack. That was the one I hadn't read that I was just bowled over. I think that's the best one. It's such a autumnal, melancholy, kind of seasoned book and it makes you wish that she had lived longer and had written more because you think it's going somewhere so different from Pride and Prejudice. It's just getting more and more sober. And also when you read them in middle age, you realise you read them as romances when you're young and when when you return to them and you're older, you see all of these characters around the edges that are funny but also very poignant and there's a lot of um, the older women and the kind of constricted lives that they have or the irritating fathers that you hadn't quite grasped were as beautifully portrayed in their irritatingness as as they are and I I could just read those books over and over forever really. the ache of being let down and bravely making the best of things and only being able to face up to a life not being quite as you hoped or deserved, but sort of but by degrees. And the obsession with property is actually an obsession with survival and women's lives being so dependent on what they're given or what they're left or what they can marry into and that those tensions actually being sort of violent and terrifying despite being described in this, you know, card games and tea and benign way. Actually, the, the forces and the precipices and the falls are are very powerful within that world. They're, they're very dramatic, but it's contained in this amazingly restrained, dignified way. So, I, yeah, I went back and read Jane Eyre the other day as well, and I thought, Jane Eyre is awful, I can't bear her. <laughs> I like the Jane Austen people who've got some dignity about them. I think as a, a younger reader, and I'm the eldest of uh, of six girls, I've got five younger sisters, and I, I felt that Jane Austen was much more sort of stylish and there was something below the surface and Jane Eyre seemed a lot more kind Mm. of all passion and tantrums and everything that I was you know warned off and told not to be and told not to sort of set a bad example and I think I always kind of resented her for that you know even though she's sort of this amazing wild captivating woman you know carving out a life from barely anything um but it's like I always loved I, I really really love Henry James and the that sort of this very kind of sexy idea I think that you know nothing can be said but everything is thought and you know what does the raise of an eyebrow mean or is that sort of you know mm, constraint basically constraint is very well it, again it's a middle-aged pleasure because I definitely read Jane Eyre for the first time and thought oh she's saying everything she feels so much it's it's such a teenage girl emotional landscape but going back to it, it was like oh Jane do shut up control yourself I felt sympathy for um Aunt Reed just come on get a grip what were you reading as a young woman as a teenager Derek Jarman um lots of Serpent's Tale books uh Kathy Acker lots of American countercultural stuff William Burroughs obsessively but also Ginny Cooper so I had um 
I had multiple strings to my reading bow. (laughs) (laughs) I always thought that if I took up roller derby, um, which I think is the way you have to pronounce it because it's an American sport, um, I would be Kathy Smacker. (laughs) Kathy Smacker or Nasty Mitford. (laughs) They're both really good. You should take it up just to have the name. I know, I think I'd sort of, I'd die in about 15 seconds, but I'd have a great name. Um, How did you meet Kathy Ecker because I think she's I was so late to her and what a brilliant brilliant writer to have as a teenager I feel like she's who a teenage girl really needs I think I had a cousin who was a decade older than me and she used to sort of pass me on you know little birthday parcels of of those sort of writers those kind of American writers and they were the perfect thing to read when you're that sort of age. Now, I was involved in Riot Girl and I was making fanzines in my bedroom. And so it, that sort of um, writing really spoke to me. It, fe- it felt it was very much part of that sort of 90s culture anyway. I've read reviews of Crudo where, you know, that sort of that link is made sort of to Kathy Acker. And it's one of those things where I admit I didn't initially see it. And then as soon as someone else did, I was like, oh, yes, of course. You know, that sort of I can really, you know, hear the the texture of it and the in a way it's sort of the opposite and the same as Jane Austen because that there's no restraint but I think it comes from the, all of the same structures that make you feel a certain way and it's like this is what I have to hide and this is what I really want to say. I love that because she is like a counterculture version of Jane Austen she is talking about the same structures and the same sort of deforming apparatus that affects women's lives but her her way of approaching it is this really punk cut up I'm going to um take all of these great works of literature and I'm just going to appropriate them I'm going to start you know stealing great expectations by Dickens but put it in the first person and make it the story of Kathy Acker so that sort of grabbing hold of great works of 19th century literature and you know using it to to tell a story about what women's lives are like and what they could be like and to sort of lay that bare feels like it's it's Jane Austen gone rogue so I was um not in part of Riot Girl in any meaningful way I was just um being a sad girl in her bedroom reading sleeve notes but I did read sleeve notes like they were books I think really before yeah, I read too. any poetry of my own volition I think that um it's it's so easy to forget that moment when you're in your mid-teens and you actually know so little about the world and you know so little about art and literature and music for me was just a gateway into everything like a band I loved would mention a writer they liked and I'd go off and read that writer I remember reading Salinger for the first time because a band called Ride liked Salinger and talked about them in Melody Maker talked about him in Melody Maker and I was like oh Salinger okay I'll look him up you know and then it just opens up more and more it's that sort of pass the parcel thing that art can do for you and I would read lyrics and be like wow these these lyrics are so great and they wouldn't be great at all or sometimes they would be I mean some of them have definitely stayed with me but it was more just that it was a sort of route into a more adult world of things that I then discovered that perhaps were better or more exciting but that was the um that was the secret door that opened I think there always has to be a, a gateway drug doesn't there and I think that it's really important to remember that that you know all of these paths lead to each other yeah absolutely absolutely that there are so many different ways through and odd little suggestions that a person makes or something I mean you know I grew up it sounds like you did too pre-internet and 
it really was like listening out for signals and clues and codes and if somebody said something you you sort of had to follow it up or somebody mentioned a club and you had to kind of find out what it was and there wasn't a way that you could sort of just be access all the information so in a way that makes you a reader as well doesn't it because you're having to pay attention all the time the, the teenage reader of that era was so invested and so active it's not passive reading at all absolutely and a perma battle I've had with any of my editors who are lovely and amazing and wonderful is about making references to things that people may not have heard of um and oh gosh who was it that was it I was having lunch with a friend who was talking about her book and the sort of making it something that American readers might be interested in and I think her editor was sort of going through and trying to make it relevant to Americans. And there's a bit where she talks about Michael Havers and the editor said, no English people know who Nigel Havers is anymore. <laughs> Heaven help the Americans. <laughs> oh no, come on, they can look it oh, up. Quite, and just, there are so many, all books yeah. educated me by context. You know, I didn't know what, anything was but that the books were my internet you know as those little references to obscure things I could sort of figure out and sometimes get hilariously wrong there's an amazing thing in um T.H. White's The Once and Future King which is a book about um wait what's he called King Arthur um (laughs) you know King Arthur um that I remember reading when I was a child and he's with Merlin and he describes the experience of Merlin sort of talking and him not really understanding as following along like a dolphin in the wake. And I just love that. That's like, it's the opposite of you should understand everything in advance. You're sort of prancing and leaping around joyously, knowing that there's so much more that you're yet to understand, but you're grasping little fragments of it. And that that feels to me like the right approach when writing. It's like it doesn't it doesn't matter if people don't know everything and you don't have to introduce every character in this sort of earnest way that people, if they're excited enough, will look it up or will look up some of it. So I always feel like it's much better to aim high and trust that your readers are intelligent and intuitive and um you know, entrepreneurial about gathering information rather than spoon feeding them with information that they're then bored by anyway. It's so true. And I love that the image of the water and the sort of the kinetic energy of, you know, waves going over your head and just carrying you along that you will just throw yourself into it and you see what you see and then, you know, go back and reread and reimmerse and revisit and everything becomes a tiny bit clearer to you. I guess a lot like so much visual art are there any novels with art storylines that you love I always think of through his what I loved I'm generally slightly embarrassed by novels about art I think um I love reading art criticism and I love reading criticism generally that uses artworks I love reading books by artists I love memoirs by artists but novels sort of set in the art world always feel like they they get things wrong or they miss the point slightly I mean I don't think I'm a massive fan of contemporary fiction anyway, but no, <laughs> it's probably not my bag. <laughs> I'd love to hear about memoirs written by artists and biographers that you have found especially illuminating or provocative or entertaining. I mean, Derek Jarman is always one of my go-to artists who is also a magnificent writer. So, you know, he wrote um, Modern Nature, which is his diary about building the garden at Dungeness, but he also... Um, he wrote a fantastic book called Chroma, which is like a meditation on colour. And, you know, he had AIDS. He was going blind. 
and he started writing this book about a, a life spent immersed in colour and just thinking about what all the different colours meant, what sort of emotional resonance they had, what paintings he loved, like Caravaggio's Scarlets, the, the sort of different ways that he'd seen those colours in art history or in nature. And it's just the most beautiful, strange, meandering book. You can you can lose yourself in it. And that feels to me much more like it has the texture of, of art than something that's sort of set more concretely in an art world I think that makes sense I suppose quite often art is used as a device it expresses themes of power and money and the absurd as well as or you know or better than you know many other industries and I guess in a book it's so often used as a way of sort of you know giving people power and taking people power and there are quite you know thrilling machinations around it but that has very little to do with the actual experience of looking at art itself that's probably true yeah and maybe that I mean I'm just thinking you know I I really love Patricia Highsmith's talented Mr Ripley novels the Mm. whole series of the Ripley novels and there's a thread in that that's all about art forgery there's a after the first one where Ripley has to kill his first friend and take on his identity he then gets involved in a forgery project and that always felt to me like it was really accurate about the art world and kind of really fascinating and knowledgeable and done with the right sort of lightness of touch that it didn't feel like I'm writing a serious novel about art I don't know it it kind of it was very pleasurable for me to read. Any writer especially a writer of fiction who can do that research and have that depth of knowledge but be sparing with it I think so often I read things where I feel the detail is gratuitous. <laughs> so I, I laboured, I sat and I researched and researched and researched and you need to know this too. Like, Do I though? There's a brilliant, um, there's an amazing line. I was um, When I was writing the trip to Echo Spring, I was going through John Cheever's papers and I found this handwritten thing where he was writing, I'm sorry, this is about Henry James, who I also like, but anyway, it's funny about Henry James. And um, he said, you can hear him as he's rushing, carrying the tea tray from room to room, audibly panting. He's trying so hard. And I just thought, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> the audibly panting has stayed with me in everything I've ever written afterwards. <laughs> no panting, oh, please. It's mean, but that's brilliant. <laughs> when do you go and research? Or it's a really stupid question, but what's that experience of, of going through these papers like as a sort of a tactile exercise like how do you kind of get to the vaults do you have favorite libraries and favorite places well I love the BL I can't wait to get back into my humanities one reading room but when I'm working on specific people it's wherever their archive is so yeah I absolutely love it I worked in the Andy Warhol archive for a while and that was it's so intimate if you're working on artists in particular I mean writers are good but artists are even better because they tend to have all kinds of artifacts so you're like you know, looking at people's wallets and passports and stuff that they've really handled, mm. and then that's very moving. And with Warhol, it was like his wigs, his wigs with a tiny bit of a sweat stain in them, and just it's really moving. It really gives you a sense of the missing person, and I find that very inspiring when I'm writing about somebody. I do. This is the cheesy and grating bit it's probably good that we've got the video off but I do the the lonely city that is the the writing about Warhol that I have most engaged with and most enjoyed and I felt most had a sense of a a human oh it's all because of the wigs (laughs) (laughs) the wigs unlocked the man (laughs) I'm always alarmed and fascinated by how what he was doing and what he presented and the way he 
presented himself has only ever become more and more and more and more relevant. And this idea of sort of sending yourself up and making a caricature of yourself was also, I guess, some of the earliest branding as we know it contemporaneously. That's really interesting because... It, it sort of looks retrospectively like he was branding himself, but I think actually he was he was making an Andy Warhol to hide behind because he was so shy and because he he so struggled with who Andrew Warholer was, this sort of sickly boy, gay, wanted to conceal all sorts of elements of his identity. And so he makes a instantly recognisable caricature persona and that that is absolutely what branding people do and he worked in advertising before he became an artist so he was very adept at making you know the image that will sell and the image that will go through the world and be successful and be liked and and it really cuts to the heart of how we are now as well in the 21st century that we're all doing that all the time you know we're building our brands and we're curating our identities and Warhol was like yeah, I did that a long time ago. But as you say, it's not just about self-aggrandizement at all. It's about hiding. And I think now we are all so exposed and I think we're all put on so much, under so much pressure, kind of voluntarily expose ourselves. And a brand isn't just about saying, look at me, here I am, buy my thing, like me, I need the numbers. But it's a sort of, um, you know, a handy carapace. We all need one. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And especially because we're all living our lives in public. And these days, we're not even in public, we're in private in public, that sort of sense that there's been a complete erosion of the boundary between the two. And you you do, in a way, need that sense of a branded identity to just feel like there's some sense that there's a private world that isn't that isn't shared, that is kind of sacrosanct, that, you know, everyone talking from their bedrooms has felt immensely exposing this year it's true and I think that weird pressure the tension and the the contradictory forces of I think we all feel as though we we have disappeared that everything's gone the markers have gone and so we're sort Mm. of I think we have had access to an easy and cheap and dangerous means of making sure that we we remain seen should we choose to use it and maybe made decisions that we wouldn't have made if we hadn't all been at home alone and locked up yeah and I think there's something as well about one of the things that I really miss about being in public or talking in public is that you can just say things you know into the moment into the air of the moment into the ears of other people but it's not recorded it's not there in perpetuity and I think all of these conversations that are sort of endlessly being recorded and broadcast and stored and there's a sense of you know you you have to be so careful you have to be thinking so carefully about whether what you're saying is right for multiple other unimaginable contexts in which it might be heard and I think that feels very perilous to people you know we're in a sort of social media atmosphere anyway that's very adversarial and very sort of critical and heated and I think that that plus the collapse between public and private has felt really scary lately. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. We'll be back to Olivia soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, Mary Jane by Jessica Anya Blau. 14-year-old Mary Jane lives in one of the smartest suburbs in Baltimore. An only child with repressive parents, Mary Jane sings in the church choir, listens to musical soundtracks and hasn't been allowed to so much as go to a rock concert. Then she gets a job as a nanny for the neighbours, the Cones. They're glamorous, messy bohemians. Even more glamorous is Dr. Cone's new patient, a rock star hoping to be cured of his addiction, is moving to Cone's house with his movie star wife. This is funny, tender, giddy and sad. The vibe is Daisy Jones and the Six meets Gigi Bloom. There's a collision of light and dark as Mary Jane has her heart opened while she's forced to confront her parents' prejudices. It's a perfect summer novel, but it will stay with you for long after the light fades. Mary Jane by Jessica Anya Blau is published by HarperCollins and out now. Now, back to Olivia. And I suppose, you know, we look at people from the past. I was thinking about Warhol, but I'm sure plenty of the people that we've mentioned already would not survive in this climate and in this culture. And there are plenty of sort of cultural figures I love that I do find it harder to love now. And I hate that. I really wish I wasn't so sort of emotional and histrionic and it's quite teenagery of me, I think, my need to like people. I think also there's something about a refusal of history that people weren't operating in the world that we're operating in now. They weren't operating by the same standards. And to try and judge people's personal lives by contemporary standards feels actually quite violent in itself. People emerge out of circumstance and circumstance changes and different kinds of people emerge. And that endless need to sort of find perfect people and for people to be pure, great artists, but also pure lives, just it feels very immature to me. It, it doesn't feel particularly realistic. And, you know, I've spent a career working on a difficult artists, many of whom have done quite hateful things, but have also made work that is full of liberatory possibilities, full of excitements and full of useful information for, for any of us. And... You've got to allow people to be both. You've got to allow people to have the full range of of possibility and experience because that is the nature of the world. It It is like that. And I think there's a difference between calling out injustice and actually just blanket, hysterical, discarding of 
artists from 100 or 200 years ago because they did something that you don't much like by the standards of a century they didn't live in. Do you have a preferred biographer of Warhol or someone who you think has done the most comprehensive writing around him? other than yourself? No, I'm really into primary sources. I mean, there are, there are definitely occasions where I think the biography, like the Virginia Woolf biography by Hermione Lee is mind-blowingly magnificent. But when it comes to Warhol, I was much more interested in his writing and in the memoirs of people in his circle, you know, even if they're sort of overblown, drug fueled and, and kind of unreliable. That felt to me like reading lots and lots of those got me much closer to the texture of his life than reading any sort of overarching biography and the same with pretty much anyone else that I've worked on that that tends to be the way that I go is trying to find as much first person recollection and also Warhol had written like what the world's largest diary I mean it's not quite but it's a doorstopper and book after book after book so he he's a very eloquent kind of chronicler of his own times anyway and that was what I relied on really I like people speaking in their own voices there's a line from his diaries that I think about at least once a week about Norman (laughs) Mailer punching someone at a party and he says Norman Mailer was the only intellectual I ever really admired (laughs) (laughs) I think I can't remember if Norman Mailer punches someone for wearing a pink shirt or someone makes a remark about Norman Mailer's pink shirt, so he gets punched. But My favourite bit is when he fires somebody's dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Fame and fortune will be fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love Andy Warhol. It's an amazingly funny book. And also, if you're writing, I was writing a piece about Trump once, and I was like, I wonder if Andy Warhol met Trump. And you go through the index, which is thousands of pages long, and everybody's there. So any time you're writing any sort of biographical work like Warhol Warhol clocked it Warhol watched it and generally has something very beady to say about it as well did you read Tina Brown's Vanity Fair diaries no I still haven't I understand that they're so accurate and good and she remembers so much because she doesn't drink (laughs) oh no very dangerous for all the people that do where one person doesn't and has a good memory and I think you know gosh do you do you live it or do you chronicle it well Warhol was clever because he rang his secretary every morning and did his over the phone to her so she was writing down what he was saying and he's just kind of chatting which is why it sounds so great because it's all sort of his real spoken voice oh that would be I don't know if you could do an anthology or or something but about the role of the phone sort of mid to late 20th century novels and otherwise. I was thinking about Mm, Dorothy Parker and how good she is on a phone conversation. I I love people getting down how people actually talk. I always find that really exciting. There's a novel called Talk that just does that, and it's so brilliant. And obviously Andy Warhol's A is just people talking, completely unmediated conversations. It's just tape-recorded conversations, and it's fascinating. And then it's so boring, just like people's phone conversations are. I don't think I know Talk. Uh, Who's the author? I can't remember, and I can't see a copy from where I'm sitting. It's got a nice yellow cover, and it was republished by New York Review of Books, maybe five years ago it's a 60s book though that sounds great fun I'm sure we can find it in the show notes some of the best books I've read over the last year I think have been those um New York Review reissues Mm, they do really good things and then they make them look so beautiful as well they've always got really lovely covers are there any books that you have loved that you'd love to see reissued anything from the backlist that you've tracked down and you think deserves a, a new audience I'm really into 
golden age detective novels and I don't know that they've all been reissued Josephine Tay, Marjorie Allingham, all of those people I suppose they sort of tick along in you know whatever jackets they've got but I feel like um, those sort of very um, sharp-eyed women from before before the war and then between the wars are just brilliant everyone should read them that's so weird because I'd never heard of Josephine Tay but um Claire Chambers um but but she said that she was a um I think a charity shop discovery or something or a something that she couldn't sort of get hold of you know as a a new book but you know I think that's really interesting as well the sort of the way women observe that between the wall period as well all of that social change all of that social unease and especially the ones just after the second world war that the kind of um, massive shifts in people's lives and massive shifts in class movement and how, you know, the the sort of container of the detective novel that's so conservative anyway is trying to manage those anxieties is is really fascinating. Again, it's a thing where you don't have to like it. You don't have to like it politically Mm. or morally to find it very, very interesting and um, opening up of a period that you know in some ways it's really close to us because I guess as I think we're probably about to find out now we think of the wars as being these sort of units of disaster and then everything was fine and then there was economic prosperity in the 60s and that was jolly actually the 50s were so bleak I think that's I'm really interested in reading about that I've just been this this already has been reissued but the Len Dayton books are just so gripping about that period where it's like it's not quite the sunny uplands of the 60s and there's there's so much damage still from the war and there's so much poverty still from the war and they're completely fascinating to sort of lean back into that period I don't know those but I would love to to read them are they are they novels are they fiction or are they sort of historical books about oh them. yeah this is like the Ipcrest oh, file course. and um, Horse Underwater and those books but then I was re- they've all just been brought out by Penguin um, with you know glamorous graphic design new covers and the one that I've just read is SSGB which is this amazing counterfactual imagining of the Germans having won the Battle of Britain and so it's a detective story and your detective is in Scotland Yard but he's working under a Nazi government and there's all sorts of uprisings and resistance but he's just doing his job trying to solve a murder but the conditions are completely other and there's this sort of unheimlich eeriness about everything because you know you've got Nazi flags down Oxford Street and there are you know all of the ruins of the Nazis having fought their way up from the coast to London and Croydon is a desperate wreckage of bomb sites and it's just um oh my god it's such a magnificent book i think it's been made into a tv series which is very exciting i bet that could be you know done in a really sort of visually arresting way i can't bear a lot of future dystopias but a past dystopia i think i'd find that weirdly uplifting <laughs> look what didn't happen <laughs> <laughs> That's true, actually, for once you can put the book down and be like, it's definitely not that bad. (laughs) And it's probably not going to happen either, so we can be really relaxed about it. Oh, I I think I might have to to give that one a read. (laughs) Cheer me up. (laughs) Because I suppose we don't know yet. And there was a real rush, I think, the sort of, you know, the pandemic, you know, what's the pandemic fiction going to be? You know, I sort of, I dread to think. I've just been finishing a a novel, trying to write that and sort of saying, well, if anyone asks, it's set at the beginning of 2019, because I just couldn't 
go and be in an imagined world that was now when I had to live in the now and the sort of, and also yeah. not the not yet being able to capture the rhythms of life accurately and really not wanting to have every other like and they got in and they put on their mask and they took off their mask and they put on the- oh there's going to be so much of that I think in the novels of next year I think we're going to be awash with it I'm dreading it yeah but I mean there'll, there'll be something that's fantastic about it but I mean there'll be a book that's fantastic in it but I think sometimes you need to have a lot of ground between you and that mm. kind of event to have clarity about what's actually happened or what it what it meant. Are there any quiet books you love or do you tend to reach for things with sort of broader, bigger, wider themes? I think I like sidelong books really. I'm I don't like a sort of potted narrative of anything. Um what I want is to come in through a different doorway and I think that's why memoirs can be so interesting or People's people's life stories have a sort of slant view on larger scenes of history. Or, you know, if we're talking about autofiction, when the book that really underpinned Crudo wasn't the sort of contemporary autofiction, it was Christopher Isherwood's Goodbye to Berlin, which I think is just such an amazing book about the moment just before war, the moment when Weimar Berlin turns into Hitler's Berlin. And... You know, he's starting off this book, which is total autofiction. Christopher did this, Christopher did that. And he's starting off with this sort of slightly um, overexcited, really, well, you know, I'm in love with Berlin and all these romantic friendships and the Sally Bowles character. And, you know, it's all very glamorous. And, and gradually, you know, he's seeing swastikas out of the corner of his eye or he's seeing brown shirts beating somebody up. And there's this sense of this is how... What happens, it doesn't just suddenly happen. It's it's creeping its tendrils into daily reality, and yet the reality is still daily. And I think, you know, now we've been through this experience of a pandemic, I think we've all had that experience of, you know, it's a question that you think about academically of, like, what is it like when a crisis befalls your life and does your life just become about the crisis? But actually, of course, you carry on with your daily life as well and your daily concerns and the petty things and the global enormous things inter interplay and are involved with each other and that goodbye to Berlin just captures that so fantastically well you know if there's a pandemic novel that is as good as that then I can't wait to read it I think that's so interesting because of course he doesn't wake up here I am in Nazi Germany again <laughs> it's day and now I'm a war reporter <laughs> and I'm telling you a war reporter I mean no he's still him and he's still got his own you know, interests and obsessions and those things loom as large as what's going on outside. You know, we're all selfish, aren't we? We're all engaged in our own lives very deeply. And at the same time, you know, if it's if it's the COVID story, then the body counts are going higher and higher. But at the same time, you're still doing what you were doing and having a fight with your friend and being like, look at this email, isn't it awful? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, that's where tenderness comes from. And I think that's sort of how we arouse it in each other because as you say the sort of the we're not meditating on the dreadful statistics or maybe we are to a point until we can't take it anymore I suppose it's like the the loo roll thing isn't it of the being perhaps sort of academically upset or you know aware of the the tragedy you know it's just it's so so dreadful it's all so awful but then really you know feeling moved to sort of violent distress by not being able to buy loo roll it's funny at the beginning of that i was like why are we talking about loo roll and then i remembered because i've forgotten <laughs> that bit of the pandemic already and then i remembered buying tampax and being like oh my god they're price gouging on tampax i've just paid 25 pounds for 
And I'd forgotten that bit of it because, you know, it's moved on. We're so far away from those first couple of months where people were stockpiling loo roll. So I'm going to need the pandemic novel to remind me of these scenes. And that's the funny thing, isn't it? I suppose that, you know, people urging each other to keep diaries and if there'll be any kind of mass observation style recording of it and what we will forget and how, you know, I'm finding now, I read uh, the Cazalet Chronicles at the very beginning of lockdown. I sort of oh. binge them back to back. Well, that's perfect for exactly the same thing, that feeling of ordinary life being very, very gradually invaded by war. Going off to buy the blackout curtain material. I mean, all those things. And, um, you know, them sort of thinking about how, you know, the bits of the house that could sort of be, you know, be converted for, for refugees and things. And that they're sort of, they're making do by, um, rather than having a separate Thai tea for the, the grown-ups and the children, they all sort of, towards the end of it, have got to go in at once. But definitely feeling like, oh, you know, gosh, I've I've got nothing to complain about here. You know, what they had to go through. And then thinking, but Edward can go to the bloody pub. <laughs> they could still (laughs) socialise I mean I do think it was much worse but um, those books are also being turned into a new TV show I just heard Ah, that's interesting by the people who did Killing Eve Uh, which seems promising did you read all the way through? did you read all of them? I did it's my personal belief that the last one should be destroyed and no one should ever read it because I think she makes up this wonderful world and it's all very, very complicated and detailed and in the last one she just destroys everybody and it's unbearable. Did I read the last one? There are five. Gosh, it's awful. I can't Maybe remember. you didn't. Maybe. Don't. So I got as far as... Did Polly get married? Yes. And she's... Yes, yeah, stop there. Sort of in the big house. The big house that's... Is it full of Rembrandts? Do they find like 30 oh, yes. Rembrandts in the attic? They're saved. That's my favourite twist in literature. <laughs> oh, look, there are 35 Rembrandts in the attic. We're saved. We've never seen these before. It is like a sort of predating storage wars. Fancy that. <laughs> oh, I love those books. Um, I have just started reading a writer called Denton Welsh. Yeah. But I loved his, I love his fascination sort of like, Objet d'art, and even as a very young man, just being sort of obsessed with going out and getting antiques and things. And that Polly and Clary are the same, and mm. I love it because I'm so sort of avaricious and ignoble, and I love things and I love stuff, and I love novels where people are allowed to get excited about stuff. I love the stuff in novels, I love the furniture in novels, but Anthony Pohl is brilliant on that as well. Actually, he's a great writer about artists and the art world, but. He's always full of stuff and people's houses have got the right kind of furniture in. And those sort of novels you can live in because you can walk in your mind back into the rooms and think, you know, this is this is what they're eating their tea on and this is what they're sitting on. And I, I love that. I love to feel that things are properly furnished. Yes. And I always get a bit of a pole vibe from Anita Bruckner, who I adore. But that sense of things being a little claustrophobic and a little overheated and when furniture is just slightly too big for a room and when something is, you know, well done and comfortable and you can sort of relax into it. And then just sometimes that's like when things are either a little bit too too new or too shabby and everything is really just sort of shoved in. Both, I think, novelists who make me want to kind of open a window and I can smell a bit of stale gravy somewhere. But I think that's a hell of a thing to evoke. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's the level. I mean, I'm interested in the characters, but those sort of things as well. I'm always so fascinated by it and so enjoy kind of stopping and pausing and imagining what 
exactly they're describing or what they're conveying. Rosamond Lehman is very mm. good at that invitation to the walls and the weather in the streets. That some of the rooms that she describes, you just, well, unpleasant ones and pleasant ones. They they really um, feel so real, so tangible. If you could live in a fictional house, or you know, go and go and stay there for a fortnight or something, where would you go? I capture the castle, but not the um, weird house where they don't have any food, but the Elizabethan house where they go and listen to <laughs> music and eat really lovely. Do they have roast Where duck? Simon and... Yeah. Um... Yes. Simon can sort of, I'll have the house. <laughs> <laughs> that feels so real to me. There are so many houses from childhood stories. Green No as well always feels very... Well, it is a real house, but it feels it feels real in my mind as well. I mean, something I do think about a lot in I Capture the Castle is Rose and the towels. And <laughs> yeah. but the way she is supposed to be sort of a terrible, calculating, you know, villain. Who, but it's really, you know, not, it's the same as sort of, you know, what Jane Austen was writing about, really. And to be yeah. that sense of everything being so stretched and cramp and everything being just a sort of source of anxiety and all it takes is a towel that is dry and soft after you've had a shower to think you know with God as my witness I'm never going back to the damp again. Yeah absolutely but also the sense that the only kind of agency you've got or the only power you've got to make a different decision is marriage Mm. and it's such a it's funny that book it's so light but then you can reread it and reread it as an adult and there's so much going on in it. It's so perfectly pitched. It it feels, you know, as we're talking, I can imagine walking down the lane with the dog or I can imagine sitting in the pub. All of those scenes feel as vivid as if I'd watched a film of them. And that, that knack is so rare. The same actually with 101 Dalmatians. The houses in that, the, the meals in that all feel very vivid. Gosh, I've not read 101 Dalmatians in the longest time. It's worth rereading. I think I read that during lockdown and... I really, I remembered it very vividly anyway, but it does bear an adult reread in a way that not all children's fiction does. I do. I haven't read it yet because I got it as a gift for my husband who read I Capture the Castle as an adult man for the very first time in lockdown and just fell in love with it. I want Dale's one word review of it. Uh, Producer Dale, what is your one word review of I Capture the Castle? One word? Uh, Fabulous. Fabulous, he says. Good word. I'm on it. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's um, the first volume of her memoir, Look Back With Love. I have never read her memoir. You'll have to report back. about 40 quid on eight books, which is annoying, but um, I will report back um, and let you know. I I also, I was was very, very lucky to get as a Christmas gift um, Henrietta Murray's memoir called Henrietta and I read it all day on Christmas day and I'd I'd wanted that book for ages ever since I read the oral history of the colony room and apparently it's quite easy to pick up until that Maggie Hamblin documentary and then suddenly the prices shot up I would really like to read that as well I will look out or maybe I can set up sort of some a tiny tiny reading room (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you need a, a little sort of lend, circulating library. <laughs> I mean, it's again what you were saying about sidelong glances. So the colony room book, which I can picture it, it's called Tales from the Colony Room. And so it's really mostly about Francis Bacon Soho, I guess, 
and you know bits of Freud and those sort of 50s 60s and then oh, we're going I to neural oh 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 Olivia it is the greatest fun it gets very sad at the end but it's an oral history and everyone's contradicting each other and everyone's bitching about each Brilliant. other I mean oral history just you know skips along I'm going to buy it that sounds brilliant it, on, it's the best um, and Henrietta turns up and she's the sort of wildly sexy sort of gaudy boozy beauty with you know it's everyone's lover and she's a sort of this icon of the Soho scene and her memoir is so wild and fascinating and fulsome that that's like half a chapter of it and she's doing all he's just sort of you know in a motorbike and sidecar and going off to communes and you know living in sort of beautiful gypsy caravans and she becomes she gets her into dexedrine for a point and then and it's and it's really and she sobers up at the very end it's it's really really moving it sounds absolutely fantastic i'm gonna look it up right now thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been really really lovely to speak to you that was lovely huge thanks to olivia everybody is published by pam mcmillan and out now your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Thank you so much for spending this time with us and we hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation as much as we did. You can follow us at YBooked on social media, look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends. Thanks so much to everyone who's left us a five-star review. It helps other people to discover us and discover new books. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Olivia at acast.com slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. For now, I leave you with this from Nora Ephron. There is something called the rapture of the deep and it refers to what happens when a deep sea diver spends too much time at the bottom of the ocean and can't tell which way is up. When he surfaces, he's liable to have a condition called bends where the body can't adapt to oxygen levels in the atmosphere. All of this happens to me when I surface from a great book. See you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.